You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Psalm 44. The superscription in mine says, To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. Verse 1. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes, and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoiled. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the people. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, We are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us. Take steadfast love. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we we read these words, and I I would imagine that immediately we grasp the weight of the emotion of these words. Uh, Father, I pray that you would come and help us as we wrestle our way through this text. You would come and you would help us to hear from you. 
God, that you would come and do work in our hearts. Um, maybe reveal to us places where we have um, unhealthy, uh, unholy, unbiblical uh, versions of you running around in our hearts. Front us, Father, with a biblical picture of who you are as our good Father. God, we love you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. A couple questions uh, on the screen here in just a moment. Uh, this is, the uh, I think, the only slide that's left uh, for the rest of the sermon, kind of similar to last week. Truth be told, to be honest with you guys, there's, there's, when it comes to these one-slide um, things, I don't have slides for the whole uh, sermon uh, to give you a breakdown. The reality is I was just lazy this week or overworked, one of the two. And so if, uh, if God uses this one slide with two questions on it to, to bless you a little bit and to help you, then then uh, praise God that he, he uses me and my weakness. Um, these two questions, though, I think are uh, right around the center or the core of maybe what we're going to wrestle with the most in the text today as we study our way through it. And I want to admit to you uh, right up front, we're going to do the best we can to work through it verse by verse. I want to try to give a good explanation. We're going to do some really heavy theological lifting. Um, th this, is a, this is a text that you know, again, we're in our summer of the psalm series, right? We just worked through 10 psalms over the summer. And psalms are, they're emotional, they're heavy. Uh, they, they are heavy theologically oftentimes, a very human, um, but very Godward too, because we get these pictures of God that a lot of us aren't, aren't uh, willing to admit, if that makes sense. Um, some of our deepest questions. And, and this is one of those texts that uh, it's going to wrestle with some of our deepest questions about God, Right? Um, is God in full control of our suffering? Is he really? Um, or is there a place where he kind of takes his hands off the proverbial wheel? That dumb country song says, um, it's not dumb, I shouldn't say that. Um, you know, or why, you know, this other question is, is closely attached, and we're going we're gonna to bump up against this question all the way through. Why do, uh, why do bad things happen to good people? Right? It's questions we ask um, when we face suffering. And so um, here's the, pro the, the problem for me, and I think the problem for us this morning, maybe it's not really a problem, but the way I'm seeing it is the Psalms we've studied so far um, kind of hinted towards all the heavy theological lifting we're going to do today, kind of hinted that way. And there was a way to kind of hide from it each week a little bit. Um, you could kind of give a head nod towards God's sovereignty in our suffering. What does it really look like? What does it really mean? Um, you kind of head nod towards it. You could kind of dip your toe in the water, so to speak. But because there was enough other thematic stuff in those other psalms, you didn't really have to focus on just that. In this psalm, though, we're stuck. Um, there's no way to get away from answering these questions according to what the psalmist is saying, and then do the best we can to look at some of the rest of the biblical uh, support for it. So just kind of giving you guys a, an idea of uh, what's happening and where we're headed um, in regards to this text as we... So I remember uh, uh, years ago, I, I met a young lady um, uh, who'd lived a really hard life. Um, she had lived a, a hard life far from the Lord. Um, and, and what was happening in her life was she was beginning to show some, some early signs of interest in the things of the Lord. Okay? Um, some of us don't have that same experience. Some of us grew up in a Christian home, Christian family, so and we kind of we had that life. Um, and, and yet the, the experiences that we have are still similar. This gal, though, um, she begun to basically 
walk towards following Jesus. God was kind of uh, pulling her to him, so to speak. And, and um, uh, some of the things that were happening in her life at this time is she was, she was at that point actively resisting a, uh, a relationship with her longtime drug dealer. Um, this dude was kind of a scrawny dude, um, little tiny little guy that um, he was still a dangerous dude. <laughs> I actually got into it with him in the Walmart parking lot because he wouldn't stay away from her. Um, it's just part of the story. Uh, her oldest son at that point had begun to attend our youth group, and uh, she was beginning to read her Bible a whole bunch. She was even starting to attend Sunday gatherings. Um, all in all, basically everything in her life was starting to look upwards, and she was starting to do the right thing. She was starting to like live this a godly life. And at the same time, she was a little bit half, uh, maybe a little over halfway uh, through a pregnancy uh, with uh, the baby of the ex-drug dealer, ex-boyfriend, so on and so forth. <clears throat> Everything was going well um, for her, um, kind of like in the first time of her life. And, um, everything came unraveled one night. Or you can see us headed there. Everything came unraveled one night. Uh, she went into premature labor. Uh, she was more than a few months early. And, uh, and long story short, she lost the baby. It was really tragic. And um, uh, I, I remember uh, rushing over to the hospital and spending a bunch of time with her and her son and family members as they were grieving um, the loss of the baby. Um, I think I think for all of us, I think it was easy to kind of look back over the past months of her life, like before the loss of this baby, and, and we're clearly remembering the way that God was showing up in her life, life the way that God was redeeming her. Um, and I think at the same time, it was also very confusing, and it was very bewildering uh, to experience all that current level of suffering in, in her and her family just despite this newfound faith and obedience to God. The reality is, is in those moments, I, I think we all get tested with how much we really do or do not uh, believe um, some of the prosperity gospel that so easily makes it into our theology. The idea that if you do the right thing, good things are going to happen. And, and listen, it's not like that uh, that kind of theology only has existed in American history. It's this is all the way back to the book of Job. Um, so long, long time, that kind of theology. We've wrestled with it. Humanity has wrestled with these questions um, since the beginning of time. So this, for me, wasn't, it wasn't the first time that I'd experienced um, something like this. Uh, wouldn't be the last time either. I'm sure most of you have probably experienced something similar, right? Things seem to be going well. You're doing what seems to be like everything right, and then the wheels come off the bus, and you're left kind of holding all the pieces, and you're going, God, are you really in control right now? Like, what's really, I thought I was doing what you asked me to do. Why are all these bad things happening to me in the midst of trying to do um, good things? And this is kind of the general place where our psalmist is at. And he begins um, in verses 1 through 8 by Basically, remembering the past, okay? You get into certain seasons of your life and you start looking backwards and you start going, I remember what happened in the past. And in verses 1 through 8, that's what he does. He remembers God's powerful deeds in the past, right? You ever look back over your life and you go, hey, I saw God show up there. I saw God show up there. He did this. He did that. That's exactly what the psalmist is doing in verses 1 through 8. If you track with me, if you look at verse 1, 
He remembers hearing the older generations around him recounting the things that God had miraculously done in their midst throughout the centuries. Right? And then, and then in verse 2, he remembers hearing how God had literally destroyed Israel's enemies while at the same time redeeming, protecting, and sustaining his very own people. He's looking back and he's going, God, you did these powerful things. You did these miraculous things. And at the same time, he's also saying, the psalmist, he's saying in verses like 3 and 5 through 7, he's, he's basically saying, hey, but I know it wasn't, it wasn't like by their own hand, right? He's been taught really well to recognize that no victory at all comes through human strength. At the end of the day, any victory we experience comes because God is the God who gives the victory, even as He actually provides us with the strength to be victorious. So at the end of the day, God is responsible for our victories. What He's saying. Still hot up here, isn't it? They must be playing with the sound stuff back. Or it. Can't, can you? It's like a like the pimple on the middle of your forehead. You're looking in the mirror and you go, no, it's there. Because of what our psalmist has heard over the years, as he remembers. Uh, because not only has he heard it, but I think he's also experienced. Uh, some of God's power in the past. What does he proclaim? You look at verses 4 and 8, you'll see he, he proclaims, hey, you are my king, God. Uh, in God, we. So he goes from personal to communal. Okay? Each of us here in this room has personal stories of how God has shown up powerfully in our lives in the past, which then creates a communal family um, proclamation of here's what we have seen God do. He does that. He says, you are my king, O God, personally. <laughs> in God, we have boasted continually, and we give thanks to your name forever. What our psalmist is doing is he's literally leading a worship song in a church family gathering so that the community can say, hey, we're praising you, God, as we remember all of your powerful work in the past. Sometimes I think uh, when you look into your past, uh, you see difficulty. Anybody have that experience when you look in the past? Difficult things, some suffering, some hardship that's happened, right? Um, I, I would insert here that part of healing from those past difficulties, healing from some of the past suffering that we walk through, whether it be um, from, from that ever-constant voice of our old enemy Satan, right? Or, or you think about the suffering that you have experienced because of your own weaknesses and sin, the consequences you're living in because of that, or just some of the very present reality that your days and my days on this earth are actually numbered, and you don't know when your ticket is going to be up. Regardless of the reason why the suffering may have been there, or the difficulties may have been there, part of healing from that suffering, part of healing from our own rebellion or the rebellion just in the world around us, um, is simply to remember God's powerful work in the midst of that suffering and rebellion. It's a glass half full rather than a glass half empty philosophy. But it's not just philosophy, it's theology. When, when you trust and you know that not, God never left, he was always there, 
just had a purpose for this suffering I walked through. When you can latch a hold of that despite how bad the suffering may be, it can set you free. So there, there, are, there are lots of ways, I think, for, for us here in this space today to remember God's powerful work in the past. But here's the reality. The reality is we live in the present, right? If you live in the past, you can get, you can get pretty unhealthy. Um, you're either living in this, uh, this constant recalling all the old days and wishing the day was just like the old days, right? nostalgic um, you know, lost touch with reality type of person. I don't, I don't, anybody here is that person? I don't know. Probably know somebody who's like that. <laughs> or the flip side is you, you live in the past and it's all just difficulty, suffering, hardship. Life is, and it's a woe is me. It's just in total bondage to all the hardship in the past, right? It's, it's the only stories you ever tell is how hard life has been. And, and listen, either one of those two places is easy to fall into. There's no, I'm not trying to cast shame or guilt for it. I'm just drawing attention to You can't live in the past. There is a present taking place. Sometimes the present darkness that we live in um, does cause us to grieve, usually because of some kind of sudden or prolonged or unexplainable suffering, right? Um, and that's where our psalmist turns his attention next. It's the bulk of our text. <clears throat> and it's where we're going to do the most heavy theological lifting uh, in verses 9 through 22, our psalmist is looking at the current, at the present, and he's grieving, and he's lamenting the suffering that God's people are enduring right now in this present moment. And he uses some really strong imagery with his words to describe God's people and what they're experiencing. Uh, just, and I'm just going to touch on some of them, right? Uh, in verse 9, what does he say? He basically says, hey, we've been rejected, we've been disgraced, we've been abandoned. Heavy words. Verse 10, he basically says that they've been defeated by their enemies as they were retreating. Like, hey, we gave up the fight and we took off and we got defeated from the backside as we retreated. Verse 11, says they're being slaughtered, scattered like helpless sheep. Verse 12, verse 12, he basically says, hey, we've been sold out like cheap, unwanted junk. There's the stuff you pulled out of your basement you don't want anymore, and the next step before you take it to the dump is free on the curb. Right? Sold out like cheap, unwanted junk. Look at verse 13. They're being taunted, made fun of by everyone around them. Verse 14, their suffering has become like comedy hour. Entertaining the masses. People are laughing at them. Eat their dinner. They sit down on their couches on the edge of the street. As they're sitting on their couches, they're just laughing at God's people. They're the laughing stock, word he uses. And day in and day out, there is no escape from the shame that they feel. There's there's no letting up from the pressure, verses 15 and 16. Verses 17 through 22, he basically says, hey, despite our faithfulness, we, we are suffering unexplainable amounts of persecution and opposition. Now here's the thing. That's heavy, right? And we could just kind of move on from there and go, yeah, we've all experienced a day like that. 
But then you're still asking these questions in those moments, aren't you? Is God really in full control of this? Is he really in full control of my suffering? Or is he only in part control? Is he sleeping in the back room? Right? Um, is he unable to help me in the midst of this because of something I did wrong? You go back to the story of Job once again. We're going to continue going back there. These are arguments that even Job's friends would make in the midst of that too. Hey, Job, you must have sinned or something. Like, you must be a liar, and you can't be telling us you're fully righteous. And that's, that's kind of the argument they're making here. Hey, we didn't do it, which seems like an outlandish thing to say. All these descriptions of what they're experiencing, and the, the question at the end of the day is, God, where are you in the midst of this? Like, what can I lay hold of that's going to be rock solid, that's going to going to get me through. And why do bad things happen to good people, right? Think about all those descriptions so far, and if those descriptions of what God's people are suffering through, if that's not enough to depict the grief that God's people are experiencing in that present moment, our psalmist takes things a wild step further, uh, once again, than, than what we've really confronted or dealt with in the Psalms leading up to it, although there's been tiny little slivers and shreds of, of this theme. As he takes this step further in his language, he basically, to me, it feels like he kind of jams a knife in to the shoulder blade, up to the hilt, twists it a little bit. That's how painful it feels, I think, when you come to grips with the things that he says. Because you might notice in, in the text, it's not just all these descriptors of the bad things that they're experiencing but there is a description of who's responsible for it. And uh, again, I don't think it's something you can hide from, and I think it's really tough theology to, to think about this, but at the end of the day, you might notice when you work your way back through it, who does the psalmist blame for all the suffering he's experiencing? Literally lays the responsibility at God's feet, says, God, you're the one that did this. That's a tough one. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, you have rejected us and disgraced us. Look at verse 10. You have made us retreat. Uh, look at verse 12. You have sold your people for cheap prices. And, and you can work through it over and over and over again. All the way from verse 10 down through verse 14. You, 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 you. You have done this. You have done this. At the end of the day, it's not just that God's people are suffering the way the psalmist is writing this. It's not just that they're experiencing suffering. God, according to the psalmist here, God, the very one who miraculously redeemed his people in the past, right? The one who got them out of a jam over and over and over again. He is the very one who has brought on this suffering in his people's lives. How do you explain this? Do you ignore it? Uh, do you change the wording? Uh, do you say, nah, it's Old Testament, we just unhitch ourselves from that stuff, we don't go there anymore? Problem with a lot of these answers, right? How do you explain this? How do you explain the activity of a loving, benevolent God 
when it also appears here in this passage that he actually is responsible for bringing on that pain and bringing on that hardship and that suffering into our lives. And can it actually be true that God would knowingly bring suffering into our lives? Is that really what the psalmist is saying? Or, or maybe it's just simply that God is not able. Maybe it's that. Maybe He's not able to intervene in our suffering because we have something called free will, a doctrine that began somewhere around the middle of the Reformation, right? If not, maybe a little earlier than that, depending on how you track it. Maybe it's because of our free will. Maybe, maybe our free will trumps God's sovereignty. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe he can't control the circumstances of our lives. When we start thinking these things, we ask these questions, don't we? Aren't these honest questions that we ask? When we answer them a certain way, the question is, do we answer them biblically is the question, right? Do we, we turn to the Bible to answer the question? Uh, could it be true maybe that God doesn't really foresee? Here's another way. Maybe God just didn't see this coming. Maybe God had a plan and then things happened because people sinned and Suddenly, God now has to react. He didn't foresee that coming around the corner in my life. He just, he just responds in accordance with how we actually exert our free will, right? You have choice, and so do I. We can make those choices, and God is left to respond to how we decide. God's just a puppet, really, if that's what we believe, right? He's just a puppet. He gets yanked around by the strains of our choices. I like the old picture from the Godfather movies. If you ever watch those, you know, the puppet master. God's not really the one, though. We are. Our, our free will is the one pulling those strings. And God's the one who dances for us. He shows up when we ask him to show up, and if he doesn't show up, we find somebody else to go to. I, again, I, these are questions, I, at least I, I ask, I don't know, I think most of us somewhere deep down inside ask these questions maybe a little differently and find ways of answering them, or you can even attempt to answer all those questions, though, um, you've got to answer a much more important question. It's the one that's at the bottom of the screen. This is the foundational question. If you get that bottom question, if you can kind of get that biblical, if you can, from there, all the other questions get answered. I think it's the core question. It's this age-old question. Why does God allow or even orchestrate bad things for good people or bad things for people who do good things. And that's the question that our psalmist asks the latter portion of the text. Verses 23-26, he literally asks that question, right? He says, hey God, why are you sleeping? Why are you sleeping, Lord? Reminds me of Jesus sleeping in the boat. When the disciples wake him up, they're like, yo, Jesus, there's a flipping storm going on here. You know Oh, you little faith. And the storm listens to him. That is a picture of a God who is sovereign over all of creation. Right? Why are you sleeping, O Lord? He says, well, why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Does God really forget? I don't think so. I think that is definitely a human question, right? It seems like you forgot, God. Did you forget? Miss this, he also begs God to intervene. He says, rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us. So our psalmist, 
he's describing God's people here when you look at verse 25. He's describing God's people like they're laying face down on the mat in the middle of the arena of suffering, isn't he? Right? Their bellies in the dust. They're laying face down. They just got pummeled in the back of the head by their opponent. And the crowd's going wild. Right? Or the crowd is absolutely quiet because they cannot believe that they're losing. Face down in the middle of the mat, the arena of suffering. And within the entire context of this psalm, what it looks like to us is it looks like God is the one standing outside the ring directing his own enemies to pile drive God's people through that mat. And the psalmist wants to know why. The psalmist wants to know why God is doing this. He wants God to come to their rescue. Come back to that core question. Think about this, right? Why does God allow or orchestrate bad things to happen to good people who are doing good things? Scriptures help us, I think, answer the question. And as you search the Scriptures, and I, I think we could, I could probably lay out a lot. I'm going to lay out just a couple. As you search the Scriptures to, to think about that question, why does God allow or orchestrate bad things to happen to good people? Here's what you're going to find out. You're going to find out the question is misguided. Misguided. It's, it's wrong. And sometimes... Sometimes here's what I think we do. We arrive to the scriptures and we go, I have this question and I'm looking for an answer. And then I find answers to that question that seem like it fits it. But the reality is what God wants to do is challenge the way we ask questions. You ever thought of that? Like sometimes you just might be asking the wrong question. Um, I don't have like a quick, quippy illustration for how that looks in normal everyday life. Maybe you can think of one and share it with me later, but... Don't we just sometimes ask the wrong questions? And I just, I think we fail sometimes when we come to the scriptures to let God challenge the way we ask the question. So here's the reason I say that. Uh, Romans 3.23 makes it ever so clear that all, you know what the word all means in the Greek? You guys are awesome. See, look at you, you're biblical interpreters now. Put a certificate on your wall. <laughs> all. <laughs> um... All have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. So the real question becomes, now, now that my question has been challenged, the real question becomes, okay, all right, my question is wrong. Why do bad things happen to good people? My, my question needs to be this. Why does God allow or orchestrate good things to happen to bad people? But I, I think Jesus says somewhere in the scriptures that, hey, no one's good except for my Father in heaven. So that's why I say it. we need to have our questions challenged. Now, I'm not trying to throw out the very human aspect of why we ask the question, okay? I'm not trying to do that. I'm not trying to get our question right so that we might then have the Bible answer it well, so we might then be set free to hold tight to a good and kind and loving and sovereign God, even in the midst of suffering. So remember these things, too, from Scripture. If you were to look at John chapter 9, You'd have to remember that Jesus explained that human suffering is sometimes orchestrated and allowed so that the works of God might be displayed. So that God is glorified in how we suffer, according to John 9. So the question then becomes, okay God, not why am I suffering, but 
help me suffer well. See, see how the question changes? Instead of sitting around asking, why am I suffering like this? Now you just ask God, God, please help me to suffer well. Uh, you could also take comfort, I think, in knowing that suffering strengthens our faith, according to 1 Peter 1. Uh, when you look at 1 Peter 1, you can't get away from the fact that that's true. Suffering actually strengthens us in our faith. Suffering, uh, according to Philippians 1, also gives us the opportunity to suffer like Jesus did. And you think about it, Jesus was the only innocent, guiltless man who ever lived. So he's the only person that could ever ask, God, why are bad things happening to me, a good person? Again, I've said earlier, the, the book of Job is helpful to us, and I've said this often. Many of you have heard me use this, and I just think it's valid. The entire book of Job introduces us to a God who, who not, is not only in complete control of Job's suffering as well as the evil that is coming against him, but if, when you read it, you're going to find that uh, God is the one who initiates Job's suffering. He initiates it from the beginning when he starts the conversation with Lucifer. Satan doesn't just walk in the room. He's like, yo, God, I'm bored. Give me something to do. God initiates it. God says, hey, you up to Satan? I'm just kind of prowling around looking for things to do. Oh, yeah, have you considered my man Job? What? Job's a righteous man. Ain't nothing ever going to happen. Everybody knows you're protecting him. Well, how about if I just release some of my hand of protection? Why don't you go ahead and do these things and we'll see what happens. Right? That's the way the story goes. God initiates Job's suffering from the beginning by starting that conversation. And then throughout the entire book, he directs Satan's attention back to Job over and over and over again. The, the entire story is a study in God's complete sovereignty. Not partial sovereignty. Complete sovereignty in both initiating and then eventually then relieving Job's suffering. So that God and God alone, the one who becomes fully justified and fully glorified, the attention is fully upon God at that point. From the beginning to the end. God, you brought this suffering into my life. When will you get me out of this? That's an intense focus on God alone. So, ask this question again. How do you answer this question about suffering that the psalmist is asking, that we're asking? <clears throat> Here's our questions. Let me clarify them. You've got two on the screen. A few other ways of asking them. Does God allow or orchestrate suffering in the lives of good people? Right? Is God really in full control of our suffering? Is God unable to control the circumstances of our lives? Is God unable to foresee the suffering that comes into our lives? Does God merely react to the decisions that I make with the freedom of my will? To which Luther would say heresy. Now, After we ask those questions, you examine the text, I think I, think I maybe you, I hope, kind of have to agree with the psalmist. God is the one. God's the one who's in full control. Um, he even orchestrates our suffering for our good and His glory. And I think it's hard to wrestle with. Hard to come to that answer. I admit, we are this side of heaven, and on this specific topic, maybe I could be wrong, right? Uh, maybe what I'm reading here, maybe what we're studying, maybe the way we're coming after it, maybe it could be wrong. But I don't think so. Um, 
If God doesn't orchestrate my suffering, think about this, God doesn't orchestrate my suffering, then my suffering has no eternal purpose. The only thing that it has for purpose is either a demonic purpose or a momentary human purpose. Agreed? I can't find no other purpose if God's not in full control of it. It's either demonic or it's human. If God is unable to orchestrate my suffering because of my free will, then like I said earlier, God becomes my puppet. God ceases to be God. My will is what sits on the throne and controls all things. If God is unable to foresee my suffering, then my question would be, how could I ever trust Him? Right? And to that, you might say, well, how could you trust a God who brings suffering into your life? To that, I would answer, because I've seen Him over and over and over again, not only bring the suffering, but also be the relief to that suffering. Right? At this point, if I were to believe anything other than this, other than that God is in full control, fully sovereign, that He's the one who brings suffering into my life, He's the one who also takes it out, if I can hold on to that, I think I'm set free from depending on my own strength and my own ability. I think at the end of the day, I must trust that God is in complete control. I must trust that He's in complete control from the beginning to the end of my suffering, and that in that He has a purpose that is far beyond my understanding. And that if I hold tightly to Him, then I think what's going to happen ultimately, He's going to bring me safely through that suffering to the other side with my eternal reward intact, with His glory shining through in my life. You and I must remember that when we suffer on this earth, we're merely passing through. This is not our home. Therefore, to me, it makes complete sense that God, who sits outside of time and space, but because He's God, is also enabled to step into time and space along with us, can orchestrate both bad and good things to happen in my life for His own purpose, so that I might look more like Him on this earth. And that is if I get past the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And I start asking the question, why do good things happen to bad people? I think if I can get there from the Scriptures, then I get to a place where I can hang on to Jesus throughout suffering. This might be um, the reason why when you look at verses 22 and 26, this might be the reason why uh, all of this suffering is happening. If you look at 22 and 26, when you think about it, all of the suffering that is happening, I think, is hung on these phrases. For your sake, God. Right? For your sake, verse 22. But when God intervenes, as the psalmist says towards the end, and you say, hey, it's going to serve, when you do intervene, it's going to serve to highlight, glorify the fact that you are a God who is full of steadfast love. I think it's for those two reasons. Now, if you were to flip forward to uh, Romans chapter 8, and you were to take chunks from there, and you might be saying, hey, I've heard Joe preach enough. I know that is one of Joe's favorite passages of Scripture, as it probably is for most Christians but here's the reality. Um, Psalm 44 is actually quoted in Romans chapter 8. And so that's why we go there, not just because it's my favorite passage. When you look at Romans chapter 8, this is probably why the Apostle Paul says in verse 18 that he considers that the suffering of this present time, catch the themes, right? Suffering, 
present time. He says they're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Say, hey, the things that are happening in this present age don't hold any power or water in comparison with what's to come. Because what's to come is what we place our hope in. Because heaven reminds us we're just passing through. We're just passing through. I think this is probably also why he says a little further down in verse 28, and it's the famous passage that everybody loves to put on their t-shirts and their coffee cups if you're part of that kind of Christian culture and you like to buy Christian t-shirts as if t-shirts could get saved. In Romans chapter 8, verse 20, amen, thank you. <laughs> In verse 28, uh, he says uh, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Which means that even our suffering uh, works together for our good. Agreed? Because that's in the context. He's talking about that. This could also be why um, this understanding of God's sovereignty in our suffering, um, I think, shows up in verses 35 through 39 of Romans 8. Um, and here is where the Apostle Paul directly quotes Psalm 44 and verse 22. And here's what he says He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Anybody ever live in that fear? Like, maybe I've just fallen too far, or maybe in this suffering I have, I've, I've moved too far away from God, or maybe even in my own sin I've moved too far away from God that He would lose hold of me. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, that would be suffering, right? Or distress, that would be suffering. Or persecution, that would be suffering. Or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. He lays out all those things. Like, could any of these things separate me from the love of Christ? And here's the quote. As it is written, for your sake. Whose sake? Not mine. God's sake, right? To bring attention to God. So that we might bring attention to God, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is Paul's theology as he studied the same psalm we're studying. Answer to the question... Is there anything that can separate us? He says, no. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. So it's in the midst of that suffering that we actually conquer. We catch a vision of conquering and living in victory as though the suffering ends. And we, and we look at it in, in a momentary, right now, in front of us kind of a view. And we, again, we lose hold of the hope of heaven we lose hold, we lose track of the truth that we are merely passing through life, imaging God, representing Him for the world. I can think of no greater way to image God, to represent Him to the world, than to suffer, even as He brings the suffering into our lives. You might say, why? But did not Jesus, my Savior and your Savior, suffer? Is that not what we are called to do well, is to represent Jesus well to a world that does not know Him? He says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure, this is a, he says, I'm certain, I'm absolutely, this is, I've got this, I, I, I do not waver on this. He says, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else. Do you know what anything else is in the Greek? 
It's anything else. <laughs> That's right. Nor anything else. I mean, is there anything else that could separate us from the love of God? Is there? No, there's not. Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, wrap this up, right? Wrap up this way. Bouncing out of Romans 8, you learn this. Nothing can separate us from God because God is in full control. Not only that, but He has full knowledge. Not only that, He's fully capable of conquering the suffering that He brings into our lives. There's there's nowhere, like I said earlier, uh, there's nowhere that this truth is more obvious than a bloody cross, an empty tomb, and the hope of heaven. There's nowhere where it's more obvious. If God ordained the suffering of His perfect Son Jesus on our behalf, why would He not also ordain our suffering so that we might become more and more like Him? If God also ordained the empty tomb on the third day, then let me ask this. Why would we not look forward to suffering in anticipation of our own experience of the victory of the empty grave? If God also ordained that one day we would walk with Him in the perfection of heaven for all eternity, then why would we ever lose hope here amidst the suffering of this life? See, the reality of Psalm 44 is that in it, I think we find what might appear at first to just be these tiny little shreds of hope in the gospel of a crucified, risen, and returning Savior. But the reality is, I think the more and more you study it in context with the rest of Scripture, you find, I think, gigantic threads of hope in a historical message. And it's this historical message of a, not only a redeeming God, but a sovereign God, a fully, completely in control, sovereign God who is also simultaneously full of steadfast love. If you don't come to a place of mystery as you follow God, not agnosticism where you say, I don't know. Mystery, just say, you know what? The mystery of a sovereign God who not only takes us out of suffering, but also brings us into suffering, also creates that suffering is simultaneously a loving and benevolent God, that that draws my heart to awe and worship. And just say, God, you are far beyond me and far over me and more than I can comprehend and, and, and more than I can wrap my hands around. I'm not in control anymore. See, it's, it's with the hands wrapped around something is where we say, I got this. But it's when our hands are no longer wrapped around and we just say, you know what, I've run this out as much as I could, as far as I can tell God, this is the God that you are and I can't change you. I'm, I'm not in control anymore and I'm just left hands open, receiving. When you see somebody lift their hands in worship, and I know Baptists don't do this very well, um, but here's the reality. None of us were Baptists before we came here anyways. Were we? Really? Okay. I'm proud of being a Baptist still, I think. I'm proud of being a Baptist and loving food. Uh, the reality is when you see people lifting their hands on worship, right? And you, you see funny little memes on Facebook. There's different, you know, you got the, you got the Baptists that are like this. And 
you got the Pentecostals that are like this, right? And it, I think at the end of the day, and people ask, like, why do you, well, I, I put my hands out like this as a sign of surrender, and it feels awkward. And you know what? It should feel awkward. <laughs> it should feel a little weird. Um, but it's good to, to posturize ourselves as being in submission, helpless, and out of control, right? Um, why, why would you put your hand up in the air, maybe, when you're worshiping? This is a, for me, in the midst of worship, this is where we get to a place in the psalm where it's like, I praise you, God, for all that you are and all that I'm not, and all that I'm never going to be and all that you're always going to be. It's that. When you look to the past and you see God's mighty, powerful, miraculous works, when, when you grieve the suffering that He brings into your present circumstances, I think um, you're also enabled to anticipate a complete victory uh, in the future. And you do that, again, by looking to the cross of Jesus, looking to the empty tomb of Jesus, looking to the promise of heaven. And I think that's how we endure um, suffering in the present. We do that in light of God's powerful works in the past. You do that as you look forward with hope to the future. And you do that, as Paul says in Romans 8.37, you do that as those who are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word and thank You for our time in it today. I pray, God, that You would provide for us miraculously as we close our time. Uh, Lord, pray that you would uh, remove anything that I said that was stupid and not honoring to you. But also, at the same time, Father, pray that you would cement within us the things that you wish to speak to each of us. God, that you would uh, maybe come and give healing to those of us who have or are experiencing extreme suffering. Help us to see you as the sovereign, in-control God who never left our side in the midst of that. Never left our side. We have a purpose in it, though we don't know it, but I pray that you would help that be healing for us to just trust and release control. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth as we close our time together. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.